Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast and to our time of studying God's Word. Today we continue the 2 Samuel series. Today we're going to look at 2 Samuel 4, 1 through 12. And the title of our study today is Bloody Justice, Severe Mercy. I'm really excited about our time together today. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are not only sovereign over all things in our lives, but you're also at work in our lives. You are not only ruling and reigning, but you're also all present. You know us, you see us, you see the state of our hearts, and Lord, you strip away everything in our lives that displeases you, that in every area of our life, you might be brought honor and glory and worship. And so, Lord, as we look at this challenging text today, may we be reminded that you are not only sovereign, but that by your Spirit you're at work in our lives, and that you're using the means of the Word, and that you carry it forth by your Spirit into our lives, into our hearts. And, Lord, that is good. It's for our good. So, Lord, may we be encouraged today, may we be instructed by your word, and may you point us to Christ as the only hope, as the foundation for our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's open it to First or 2 Samuel 4, 1-12. through 2 Samuel 4, 1-12. Hear what God's word has to say to us today. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. And now Saul's son had two men who were captives of raiding bands. The name of the one was Benah, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Reman, a man of Benjamin for Baruth. For Baruth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Barathites fled to Gideon, and have been sent sojourners to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, who had crippled, who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Meshobeth. And now the sons of Rimmon and the, the Bethrite, Rechab and Benaz, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth. And he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get weed, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Benah, his brothers, escaped. And when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. 
The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechabab and Benah, his brother, sons of Rimmon the Bethorite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, when no one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Zitlag, which was a reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is a reading of God's word. His precious word. In Psalm 37, David gave advice that he often had to practice in his own life. That's true of all of us. Of all the advice that we would give, we have to practice the advice that we give to others. Psalm 37 urges us to wait on the Lord, which means to patiently permit the Lord to provide godly solutions to our problems. Psalm 37, 5-7 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. This was a very counsel that David needed in the period between the death of Abner, his main adversary, and his coronation as king over Israel. David knew what should happen, but there didn't seem a good, any good way to achieve it. And so Abner had brokered a peace that would unite Israel under David's rule. But David's own general, Joab, had slain Abner in cruel hatred and jealousy. And while David had properly mourned Abner, proving that he had no part in the murder, there was still the problem of Ishbosheth. This man was the son of the previous king Saul, and thus David's chief rival for Israel's throne. Ishbosheth had been weakened to the point of, uh, 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 by Is Abner's defection, but as of yet he had not surrendered. And the northern tribes had not renounced him in favor of David. And now David might march in force on Ishbosheth, but that would not be a very good way to woo his future subjects. Nor would it go well with the ideal of godly kingship that David was supposed to represent. The alternative was to wait, to pray, to look for the Lord to provide in his providence a way to advance. And by following the advice of his own psalm, David was richly rewarded by God's intervention, by placing him on the throne. And if David found it hard to wait upon the Lord during this tense interlude, Ishbosheth and his followers found the situation even more distressing. 2 Samuel 4.1 says, And when Ishbosheth saw his son heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all of Israel was dismayed. Literally, the Hebrew text says that Ishbosheth's hands dropped which is a vivid way of saying he had lost his courage. When John Balu advocated as king of Scotland in 1296 AD, the royal arms were torn from his surcoat, giving him the name Tomb Tabard or Empty Suit. This is what Ishbosheth had become without the military support of Abner, an empty suit. And seeing their supposed king was unable to fulfill his function as their war leader, his supporters in the northern tribes were dismayed. Ishbosheth and his followers show how easily overthrown are the wicked 
who seemed to pose a deadly threat to the people of God. John Calvin says this, Let us not doubt when we see the enemies of our Lord Jesus in power that it will take nothing to make them broken people who will not know which way to turn and why. Because they do not have God on their side. They cannot call on him. You see, Jesus once said that true faith is revealed in perseverance under trial, whereas a false faith having no root withers in tribulation in Matthew 13, 20-21. David had his unwise and unbelieving moments, even in the darkest trials of his life, that drove him to safety. But he was like a brave soldier who sometimes is taken by surprise and driven back, or sometimes so weary as to halt the advance, but always recovers and returns undaunted to battle. Ishbosheth, in contrast, was like a braggart who boasts when the enemy is running away, but shrinks in the face of determined opposition. What made David so different? William Blakely observes that David was upheld by the consciousness of a higher strength, being able to turn in prayer to the secret place of the Most High, taking hold of him as his covenant God. Unlike Ishbosheth, David had true faith that gave him the inspiration and the strength he needed to prevail under trial. Now, unbelievers are easily overthrown because they're unable to call on God, but also because of the wicked company with whom they inevitably associate. A prime example is the case of Ishbosheth's raiding captains, Benah and Rechab. Reman, their father, was a man of Benjamin from Baruth, a place which we are told that the Berethites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day in verses 2 through 3. Now, the Bible does not tell us of this episode except that Baruth was a dwelling place of the Gibeonites, a people placed under Israel's protection, but whom Saul wickedly put the sword to and plundered. And it seems that the captains hailed from a family that had taken and benefited from that atrocity. Ruffins like these are drawn to ungodly sources of power, and by employing such men as Ishbosheth lost his very life. 2 Samuel 4, 5 through 6 says, Now the son of Rimen, the Berethite, Rechab, and Benah set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. This was a craven act of violence and betrayal. The biblical text gives emphasis by way of repetition, offering additional details. 2 Samuel 4, 7 says, And when they came into the house, as he laid on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and went by way of the Arabia all night. You see, the brother's assault was as efficient as it was detestable. And in this way, Ishbosheth received a bloody judgment for raising his crown in open violation of God's revealed will. And having given himself to a sinful cause, he was slain by wicked hands from wicked men. All this reminds us to never envy the wicked in their pride and their pleasure, because they're always going to come under God's judgment. Ishbosheth's rebellion against God's anointed king came to a sword end that reminds us sooner or later the wages of sin truly is death. And when King Saul died at the battle of Mount Geboa, an opportunistic Amalekite king took the king's crown and the armlet and raced to David's base to be the first to share the good news. 
and perhaps the embellishing his story the messenger claimed to have given Saul his death blow at the wounded king's request. Expecting rich reward for this report that Amalekite was instead put to death by David for striking God's anointed king. And one might think that that word of this event would have spread widely, but apparently the news did not even make it to Ishbosheth's headquarters. And thus Ishbosheth's killer Benah and Rechab arrived un- unwarned in David's headquarters, seeking reward for slaying his rival to the throne. And if they were warned, then their minds were corrupted. In fact, 2 Samuel 4 8 says, Men and selfish themselves, they thought of other men must be the same. And so they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. This statement reveals the true motive of these murderers. They were disloyal. They slay their sworn lord and their fellow Benjamite, Saul's son. The brothers were also self-seeking, aiming for personal advantage and unjust reward. And furthermore, they dared to justify their bloody crime by an appeal to the will of God. And it's undoubtedly true that God had judged Ishbosheth through the hands of these wicked men, but having so grossly transgressed God's law, they had no right to claim divine endorsement of their deed. And David's response to pronouncing judgment against Benah and Rechab is to be commended on two levels. First, David is praiseworthy because of what he did, and also because of why he did it. First, the what. David exercised divine judgment in the form of bloody vengeance on the men who had murdered Ishbosheth. The king explained his actions by recalling the earlier occasion when he had executed a man who claimed to have struck down uh, Saul. 2 Samuel 4, 9-11 says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, when no one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I, I seized him and killed him at Zitleg. What so is the reward I gave him for his news? How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And by beginning with his reply with an oath, as the Lord lives, David formally convened his royal court for judgment. And this judgment, he determined, would adhere to the punishment of God's word. It was not for David to implement his own ideas about crime and punishment, since God had clearly stated the penalty for this kind of wicked deed. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man his own image. You see, so sacred is the life of any man, since every human bears the image of God, that only by the death of, the mur- of a murderer can a murderer be avenged. Ishbosheth's slaying violated this law. This is what David meant by calling him a righteous man. In verse 11, meaning that whatever else was true of him, Saul's son had not given the two captains ground to slay him justly. And the clear punishment under God's law for murder was death. And now David ordered the sentence to be immediately executed, followed by a public display that was intended to advertise his justice. Second Samuel 4.12 says, David commanded his young men and they killed him and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And now some would condemn David for this bloody reprisal, especially since the punishment was meted out so swiftly. 
But there could be no reasonable doubt about the brothers' guilt since they had boasted of the sin and brought with them the convicting evidence of Ishbosheth's head. David was God's servant in punishing murder, just as the New Testament teaches that secular rulers today are given the sword, an instrument of death, Romans 13, 4 says, to be the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And by judging Ishbosheth's murderers, David proved himself innocent to those who might suspect him of conspiracy in the removal of his rival. David had consistently honored God in all of his dealings with Saul and with his house. He had refused to take Saul's life in the cave and in Gadai, since for all of his base crimes, Saul nevertheless was Israel's anointed king, and it was David's duty to reverence him. Now David was the king, and his duty was to execute the men who had killed Saul's son. In fact, in carrying out God's wrath on sin, he proved himself to be a man after God's own heart, in contrast, King Saul had lost his throne precisely for withholding the sword from those on whom God had commanded death. Like David, we honor, we serve God, we submit when we submit to his commands rather than replace God's word with worldly opinions. And just as important as what David did is why he did it. And his explanation to the murderers began in verse 9. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary. This testimony tells us that David was obeying God's word out of gratitude for his saving work in his own life. As one who has experienced God's saving grace, David desired his life to give glory to God. And the only reason that he was not willing to receive his kingdom from bloody hands of murderers. You see, God had given David, been sovereign in mercy to David. And so David desired his salvation to come in a way that glorify God in obedience. Now, Christians should likewise shun sin as that which will dishonor God who redeemed us with the precious blood of Christ. Armed with a God-pleasing attitude, believers will refuse to use deceit in order to gain advancement at work. Likewise, godly church leaders will provide a proper process of discipline when accusations are made against believers. And even when our own well-being is threatened, Christians should put the cause of the Lord ahead of self-preservation. As John Calvin says, when we are tempted to evil under the excuse of saving our life, under the excuse of ridding ourselves of some worry or even of anguish, or of some remedy for our own troubles, let us not think, has God not taken care of us up till now? And since therefore we have known him to be so merciful to us, and we have been saved by his hands so many times, should we now abandon him? And to fully appreciate the godliness of David's actions, we need to realize how much relief Ishbosheth's murder brought to him, and also how David's rejoicing in this wicked deed would have been tantamount to idolatry. God had promised to make David a king so as to appeal to any other source for vindication, especially sinful men like these brothers would be, to deny God's sufficiency for meeting David's needs. The murderers were claiming to be David's redeemers, saying in verse 8, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. And verse 9 says, But David refused, saying, The Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversary. And for the same reason that David rejected the pleas of Ishbosheth's murders, gratitude for God's redeeming grace, Christians today are called to cheerfully withstand the trials and the temptations of the world. 
In fact, Polycarp of Smyrna showed the same Christ-honoring spirit when he refused to betray Jesus under the threat of Roman persecution in 155 AD. The Roman proconsul threatened to throw Polycarp to the wild beasts if he would not worship Caesar and burn incense to the emperor's statue. Polycarp answered that the Romans should send for the beasts. The proconsul answered, to the aged bishop who would be burned alive if he would not curse the name of Christ. Polycarp answered in the spirit of David and refused to partake of God-honoring sin, saying this, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You see, both David and Polycarp realized that their gratitude to God meant that they could not permit anyone but God to gain the glory for their very lives. And as we've considered <coughs> 2 Samuel 4 in terms of bloody judgment, in the perspective of David's whole story, we need to realize that in and through these events, God's mercy was at work on behalf of David and Israel. The chapter begins with David waiting on the Lord, unable to take action to bring his coronation into effect. And so God went to work on David's behalf, removing the obstacles, opening the way for David to receive his blessing. And God had anointed David to be king in the place of Saul. And it was God's job to fulfill his own promise. David's job was to keep himself free from sin while obeying the commands of God. By his patient obedience, David shows us that the fastest and the best way to enter into God's blessing is to heed his own advice that we began with this sermon with, in Psalm 37, 7, and be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And one clue that 2 Samuel 4 is about God's taking responsibility to handle the problem of Saul's house is a brief account of Jonathan's son, Mishobeth. This poor boy was five years old when his father died right next to King Saul. And when the news came, his nurse took him up and fled and as she fled in haste, he fell and became ill, 2 Samuel 4, 4 says. And why is this brief description found in the chapter relating to the details of Isbosheth's murder? Well, the reason is that it shows the various ways by which God was taking away the ability of Saul's family to threaten David's rule, while at the same time providing David with opportunities to exercise godly judgment so as to command his reign. Of Saul's two remaining male descendants, one was slain for rebellion, while the other, who had not rebelled, was made lame so as to remove him as a threat to David. Psalm 37, uh, 34 says, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. This is exactly what happened through David's faith in the Lord. His example urges us to wait on the Lord to meet our needs and defend our interests, Refusing to sin and honoring Christ through a life that obeys his commands. You see, do you have a relationship today strained by sin and chronic misunderstanding? David's example, it urges us to consider prayer as a primary means of reconciliation when direct action is likely to go awry. Do you have, do you have a difficult job situation with not, no godly course available? Consider the option of continuing to serve in a godly and a cheerful spirit, placing your well-being into God's hands. And by cutting down Ishbosheth and crippling Mishobeth, God was showing mercy not only to David, but also to the people of Israel. 
The Lord had ordained that Israel would find salvation only through the house of David, through whom the Savior would someday appear. Israel was stubborn, refusing to submit to God's word, demanding uh, a worldly, worldly ruler like Saul, and yet refusing to submit to God's word, and, they, and thus rejecting the kind of spiritual ruler that David personified. And the Lord therefore chastised the Israelites, stripping away the house that they had chosen in rebellion against God. God was determined to remove every false support and every source of disobedience to God's word, going so far as to slay one of one son of Saul and maim another grandson, also that his people might come to David and gain God's saving mercy. And John Calvin says this about this account, that it's an example of what God does in us when it pleases him to call us in his subjection to the Lord Jesus. And like the Israelites were prone to disobedience, to foolish, foolish willfulness, and rebellion against God's word. And God is willing to inflict us with the painful suffering, stripping away all that we cling to in the place of him. Calvin says this, It is necessary for God to remove the occasions which could prevent and retard us from submission. And he continues saying, Moreover, when God wants to call us to faith, he must not only touch us so as to live in our hearts by his spirit and remold, remake, and recreate us new creatures. But he must also cut short all opportunities that we could take to be remiss or to wander here and there or to cut hold back so that we could live ourselves when we have the chance. And in this way, it was God's mercy to leave Israel with no practical option except to turn the kingdom that he had ordained by the house of David and ultimately through Jesus Christ. In understanding this, we should likewise praise God whenever he removes our idols, however painfully, so that we might be saved through faith in Christ alone. God's willingness to take away even good things we love in the place of Christ has been referred to as a severe mercy. In fact, this was the title of a book by Sheldon Vanaquan, who had professed faith in Jesus after his wife Jean was dramatically converted under the influence of C.S. Lewis. Van and Jean had been an uncommon couple passionately devoted to each other they even made a pact that they had called the shining barrier an agreement that they would do everything together so that everything in their lives would serve to increase their love and they agreed for instance to forgo having children since only Jean could experience motherhood and this would divert her from the crowning love of her husband after their conversion to christianity it became clear that christ intended to invade the shining barrier so as to make himself the crowning love of their lives Van resented this, insisting that his own ideas of love should have preeminence over Christ. And over time, he sought to undermine his wife's fervent faith and to oppose God's word as it sought to rearrange their habits and priorities. And realizing that her love had become an idol and a barrier to her husband's salvation, Jean offered for the Lord to remove her by death for the spiritual well-being of her spouse. And this is exactly what the Lord did. Jean contracted a strange illness and died after a brief struggle. Her dying words to the man she once worshipped in place of Christ expressed her joy at the vision of the higher glory into which she was passing. And she says, Oh, dearling, look, she cried, directing her attention, her husband's attention, once more to the glory of Christ. And, and Van Aken responded bitterly to the death of the woman whom he had given his all-consuming love. In an attempt to make sense of his feelings, he communicated with C.S. Lewis, admitting 
They had wanted to keep his wife in the place that Christ demanded for himself. And Lewis answered with words that also apply to God's rough dealings with rebellious Israel and God's discipling hand in the life of his wayward people. You have been treated with a severe mercy. It is not God's wrath nor God's malice that causes God to afflict whom he intends to save. It is his loving, severe mercy which will strip away all that stands in the way of true and saving faith so that God's people may gain the higher privilege of rejoicing with great wonder at the sight of his glorious son, the sight that filled the dying vision of Jean Van Auken and all that awaits all the rest of God's people. Now David knew that his many trials and suffered many of God's severe mercies on the way to his throne. Through them all, he had learned to praise the Lord who redeemed, uh, redeemed my life out of every adversary, verse 9 says. Now David shows us the wisdom of waiting on the Lord to bring us salvation by means of his own choosing. Our part is simply to obey God's word, to trust his promises and fulfilling his commands. God will always be faithful to do all that he has promised, even if our wayward hearts require his grace to come up to us in a, in a way that seems severe. And as we continue to read the Bible, we learn of a greater David who inspires us even more to wait on the Lord and to live for the glory of our Redeemer. It was glorious for Israel to have in David a king who would enforce God's bloody justice on the wicked. But you see, in Jesus Christ, we have a higher sovereign and a better Savior. Christ the King not only inflicts justice on his enemies, but he takes himself the penalty of his people's sins, offering his own blood to save us from the bloody judgment we deserve. If in our waywardness we view God's mercy as severe, we nonetheless rejoice over every stroke, every loss, and every trial that leads us to the crowning mercy of knowing Jesus Christ. You know, there might be a situation in your life today that seems like, you know what, this is hard. This is difficult. You know, I want, to, I want to share very honestly with you, as I have in the past, you know, both of my parents I've shared have memory issues. And this is very difficult. And especially during this season of COVID, and even as we seemingly move out of this season of life, there's been a lot of challenges, personally. It's, it's, it's tried me. It's, it's shaped me, for sure. But it's also been so good because what it's done is it, it's made me trust the Lord even more. And, and, it, and it hurts. It hurts to see your parents, uh, because of the fall, because of sin, uh, declining. That's what, that's what brain illness does. But here's the thing also. You know what? Even in this, God is good. Maybe you're facing a situation that seems impossible. Can I say, you know what? I'm in the middle of that. Every day I'm just confronted with this situation that seems so impossible. It seems impossible to handle, impossible to, to get through. In fact, there was a situation with my dad. I'm not going to tell you everything about it, but it just seemed impossible. It seemed like here we are going to go back back to isolation but god being rich and god is so rich in mercy it's an essential activity for him to go to church and he's able to go to church and i, I had no idea how to talk to him how to comfort him how to uh, 
console him if he wasn't able to go. But God, God is so good. And I just said, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know how this is going to work. I don't even know how to say if this happens. But God had already taken care of it. Maybe today there seems like a situation in your life that seems out of control. And you know what God is trying to do in that? He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to say, you know what? Will you trust me with this? With this situation? You profess to know that I am sovereign. The Lord is sovereign and he's good. And that he's in control and he's He's." Governing the affairs of our lives according to his sovereign purpose. (coughs) And that's what we believe as Christians. Like David, we have to trust the Lord. We have to wait on the Lord. Sometimes that's going to mean that that person might get saved later in life. Or maybe they'll reject the Lord. Maybe sometimes that situation will never get resolved. Even there, God is good. Maybe there's a strained relationship. You know what? God is still good. Will you trust him? Will you wait on the Lord? Will you pray? And trust that God will act in his own time, in his own way, and for his glory. You know, this this season of COVID has been challenging. Even, Even before this with my dad, he had a urinary tract infection for about six months. That was that was really trying. And then we went from the urinary tract infection into the into COVID. This little break. Literally the last year and a half, I'm going to be honest, it has tried me. <laughs> it has been testing. But it's also deepened my prayer life. It's increased my dependence on the Lord. And you know what? That's what I'm talking about here today. Are you going to wait on the Lord? Are you going to trust him? Are you going to believe that he is truly good in the midst of whatever you're going through today? Or are you going to doubt his goodness and question his character? See, to wait on the Lord is to trust the Lord. It is to believe that his promises are yes and amen in Christ. It is to believe that the character of God is good and holy and just and perfect in all of his ways. You know, challenging seasons will come and challenging seasons will go. You know, our lives are but a vapor. We are here and then we're dead and buried in the ground. And none of us knows the length of our days. None of us knows the day uh, that we're appointed to die. And that's not morbid. That's just a fact. But here's the thing. If you don't believe in Christ today... There's good news. Your death doesn't have to be the final say. Because Christ has conquered death in the grave. I urge you today to trust in Christ. Maybe today that that situation that seems so challenging. What it's trying to do is it's trying to point you to the hope that only Christ can give you. Because no family member, no situation, no circumstance will ever be enough to satisfy you. Because only Christ can satisfy you. Because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity on your heart. On the circumstances and the things of your life, God is trying to point you to Christ. To, to point you that you need a Savior. 
So will you repent and believe on Christ? Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Praise God. But here's also the thing. Maybe today, dear Christian, you're going through a time when it seems that that is hard. And you know what? We all go through those seasons of life. We're all going through this COVID thing together. And God is still good. And God is still on the throne. And his promises are still the same. Jesus Christ, scripture says, is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. His peace is the same. It still saves. His peace is still true in your experience. The Holy Spirit still indwells you and empowers you to make disciples who make disciples of the nations. The Holy Spirit is still the same one who comforts you, who comes alongside of you. We have the same advocate, the same mediator, the same intercessor, the same high priest in Jesus. So no matter what you're going through today, you can run to him, dear Christian, and trust him that he is enough for you. And you know what that'll do in the midst of the challenges of your life? What it'll do is it'll strengthen your faith. It'll strengthen your resolve. And what that'll do is it'll help you to be bold in the face of whatever you're facing. And that's what we need today. We need bold Christians. We are facing challenges on every side. Make no mistake about it. And we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Like we saw in 1 Samuel. David strengthened himself in the Lord. That means that we're daily in the Word. We're daily praying. We're doing life with God's people in the local church under the Word. Because you know what? There's going to be times in our lives when it seems like all of life is falling apart. I know that all too well. I'm sure you do too. But how do you prepare for those times? How do you get through those times? You don't question God. You see, God is not only sovereign, but he's good. And he's using, he's orchestrating all of these events for the purpose, displaying his glory and the good of his name, we see. We will see this throughout 2 Samuel. And it's so encouraging. If we grab hold of this, we will face trials with hope. And we will face them with God's help. And we will grow through our trials for God's glory. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given to us to open your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would take this word and plant it deep in our hearts by your spirit that you would bring conviction and comfort and help of your grace that abounds all the more towards your people. And Lord, I pray that you would also open eyes and ears of their need of Christ and that you, that you by your spirit would carry that forth this message into their hearts and irresistibly draw them to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.